Dr. Kitchen was a brilliant fellow, but like many brilliant fellows, had kind of a, a personality that you could like him one day and not like him the next. Sharp, demanding, innovative. Dr. Hiram Kitchen pushed the boundaries in veterinary medicine, but did his intense demeanor get the former dean killed? Appears to be an execution. Come up, bam, 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 bam. No DNA that we can find. I'm Leslie Ackerson. And I'm John North, and this is Appalachian Unsolved, the podcast. As dean of the UT Vet School, Hiram Kitchen had distinguished himself on a national level. He had no known enemies. And that's why both his friends and police investigators were so puzzled when his bullet-riddled body was found in his own driveway. It was early the morning of February 8, 1990. Dr. Hiram Kitchen had left his North Knox County home to go meet colleagues for breakfast, but he never made it out of his driveway. So this comes out of nowhere for the neighbors. There are shots fired repeatedly, nine shots in total. He's just going off to this breakfast, minding his own business, when he obviously encounters somebody at the end of the driveway. First shot uh, hits him, I think, in the chest. He calls out something to the effect of, what the hell do you think you're doing? And he tries to get away, and the shots keep coming, until finally he collapses on the ground, and the next final two shots are to the head. We spoke with Knox County Sheriff's Office cold case investigator David Davenport who went back over these files. You know that we had witnesses that said they heard a car pull in his driveway. If you go out there you notice it's not easy to get in there and get out of there. If somebody pulled up to the gate, there was a gate there because they had animals in there at the time and because uh, he had to get out to open the gate and speculation was he was out opening the far gate when he got shot. We look back at our old archive footage and you can see the place is just crawling with authorities. The car is still out there. I believe it was running when they arrived. Evidence shows he attempted to run from his assailant. His body was found 100 feet from his car. We've picked up nine spent cartridges. Looks like there's one that hit him in the hand like he held up a defensive posture and held up his hand. He had a gunshot wound to the chest, I think he had one to the ankle, and then the two that I mentioned to the head. This, this was a 22. If you get shot with a 22, it, it's not going to blow a big hole in you, so you have a good chance at surviving, but the problem is the 22 bullet tends to bounce all around inside you. But that aside, whoever killed Dr. Kitchen was absolutely determined that he was not going to get up from that driveway. Reporters initially spoke to Detective Larry Johnson back in 1990, who said this was definitely a crime of a passion, would you say? The person was not happy and very much intended that Dr. Kitchen was not going to survive. Whoever shot him was definitely highly agitated. I mean, uh, it, it wasn't, uh, uh, they didn't intend for Dr. Kitchen to get up and walk away. When somebody makes a point of firing that many shots at you, they want to ensure that you stay right where you are, that you are dead, that you cannot be healed. 
Word of this shooting traveled real fast. Dr. Kitchen was well-known on campus. The University of Tennessee has a very well-known, renowned veterinary school that he was the dean of. So he had all these students that he was in charge of, colleagues, everyone heard about this. Even though you know there weren't cell phones in the 90s, everybody found out about this pretty quickly after he died. The campus was buzzing with activity that morning. As we already mentioned, Dr. Kitchen had a breakfast meeting that he was supposed to attend. He didn't show up, and as you say, within an hour or two, suddenly people on the UT campus knew something was up. There were people in meetings who would go on later to say, all of a sudden I heard a commotion in the hallway, I ran outside, and people were saying Dr. Kitchen has been shot. And that's what Kitchen's friend and colleague Dr. DJ Crawwinkle told us as well. But it was very quickly, by 8 o'clock, the news was all over the college that Dr. Kitchen had been shot. And, and it was quite a shock. Deans don't get shot. They may have a heart attack. They may quit. They may retire. They may do a lot of things. But deans don't get shot. Who'd want to shoot a dean? So that's the question that investigators struggled to figure out back in the 90s. Today, it still remains unsolved. Who killed Hiram Kitchen? Looking back over some interesting tidbits, you mentioned he cried out and that neighbors heard the shots, but they weren't the only ones who witnessed this. He had a wife at home at the time. That's right. His wife, Yvonne, they'd been married more than 30 years, had two children. By all appearances and reports, happily married. I think she would later say they'd had a great little conversation before he got in the car to head out. There was no reason to think, although suspicion would fall on her, she would have done this. He had just celebrated his 32nd wedding anniversary with his wife, Yvonne. I just wish I'd been in the car with him that he and I didn't have to go through it alone. Yvonne Kitchen eventually moved to Oregon, leaving behind the painful memory of her husband's death, but never the hope that his killer would be found. So in order to try and learn more about what happened, they do something that's a little weird. I don't know about you in all the years that you've covered law enforcement, but I've not actually heard of this before. It's really kind of odd. They decided some months later to essentially recreate what happened that morning on the kitchen driveway. So if I'm remembering correctly, while Mrs. Kitchen was home, they positioned a car like where his Buick was located that morning. And they had a deputy or a detective who also was placed on the driveway and they fired a number of shots as she would later recollect. And then they actually had somebody in law enforcement fall into the position where Dr. Kitchen fell. You know, you look back on it 30 years later and you think, that's really kind of odd. What was the point of that? Was it to jar her memory or was it to jar something else from her? They never got any sort of confession or any information for her, even if she had been a suspect. Ultimately, she ended up moving away from Knoxville. My sense is that she had stayed in touch with law enforcement. She knew, she acknowledged, yes, if there's a homicide and your husband or your wife is killed, guess who they're going to look at? That's always a rule of thumb. You always look at who's closest, who would have been around. She was there. This was a house that was not in a heavily populated part of the county. It was kind of out in the country. They had a little bit of a farm, but she ultimately decided she needed to leave. So he was a pioneer. Dr. Kitchen did things other people thought about. We put, we put birth control implants in lines. One time he and I went to Detroit to sew the trunk back on an elephant who'd gotten in a fight and bitten the trunk almost all the way off. One of the leads they had 
was his involvement with animals, with zoos, with veterinary medicine. He was doing all these incredible things to break boundaries and scientific research. Not everybody was happy about the methods he chose to do that. He was in the forefront of veterinary medicine, and we got letters that it could have been an animal rights group. This was during the time when animal research was very prevalent. So a lot of people said, well, it was some animal rights group, one of those off-the-wall animal rights people who used to go in and break into, into research and turn the animals loose and, and lie in wait for people who did research. Dr. Kitchen himself was not doing research at the time, but, but he had been in the past. Some rights groups pay great attention to what happens with vets, with veterinarian schools, in training, animal research, all of that. And especially starting in the 1980s and going into the early 1990s, you saw more activity by rights groups. So all of a sudden, these threatening messages started showing up. They were being sent to people tied to the school. They were just making sort of odd threats, suggesting that there was something else going on. And, and it, it appeared to be related to his killing. And there was some speculation that a group may indeed have been doing it, or somebody who was an activist is the one that actually killed him. But that was later cast aside. They decided, no, there's not enough there to say that's really what happened. I mean, every, every road you travel to try to link it, you met with a dead end. He was actually a very smart, brilliant guy, was a veteran. He had a, a really great resume and, and a family life as well. People that we've talked to, Leslie, say he was an extremely smart man. He was a visionary. And on the other hand, he kind of knew it. So that he could be abrasive because he was so smart that when he was convinced that he was right, guess what? He was right. And that's the way it was going to be. He had the ability to make people mad. That was not unusual. He said what he thought, and if you didn't like it, that's just too bad because he was convinced that he had thought it through and he knew what was best. That's often the case with incredibly bright people. They may come across as kind of strident and, uh, oh, he seems to know better than anybody. But you know what? There are people like that who do know better. And what I've seen and learned from this case is I think he really was that way. He did some really fascinating work that was really progressive for its time, both in terms of the relationship that animals had with people and then also trying to help zoos out and to establish relationship between, say, a veterinarian college and the zoos. Even though he could be a little gruff and rough around the edges, he had a warm heart and he cared about children. He was a big advocate of a teddy bear clinic that the university hosted. He became a huge proponent of this idea that you could meet children and college personnel could interact with kids through this teddy bear clinic. And we've seen pictures of him from the late 80s which show him a huge smile on his face, a little kid with a teddy bear, and he's like using his stethoscope or something to check on the teddy bear. I think I read somewhere he even actually had a collection of teddy bears. And that's actually something the University of Tennessee still does today, is they still carry on these clinics, these open houses where people can come, children, and learn about what the school does. Dr. Kitchen wasn't a Tennessee native. He actually was born in California, 
went through the Army, uh, got degrees in California, both Florida, went to Michigan State and worked with the Detroit Zoo, and that's when he first met his colleague DJ Crawwinkle, and they did a lot of work in the zoo there. And then they both ended up moving here and continuing that program with our local zoo, Knoxville Zoo. Kitchen had a very wide interest span. He was very much into exotic animals. His department took care of the zoo. Now, he'd go out there sometime and work at the zoo, but he had people worked with him, under him, who, uh, who took care of all the animals at the zoo. For the Knoxville Zoo, it was a huge um, development because he said to them, hey, we've got this College of Veterinary Medicine and you're going to have needs for the care of your animals. Let's share our experiences. We can help you out. Again, looking back, it was one of those things where it was visionary for somebody to be thinking that way. And it's a relationship that continues to exist today. The Knoxville Zoo, now called Zoo Knoxville, has gradually through the decades sort of risen in terms of its national profile and its reputation. And the College of Veterinary Medicine continues to work on animals. If something happens or if they need surgery or what have you, UT gets involved. It's really pretty cool. So all of that to say, Dr. Kitchen appeared well-liked, even if he could be a little intense. He was doing a lot on the forefront of veterinary medicine, and it really didn't appear that he had any enemies un unless those letters were really real. Investigators now and investigators then back on the scene both seem to agree it was a crime committed by someone that was upset and angry because of the way his body was found, because of the multitude of, of the bullets, but they really were never able to connect it to anybody. People kept saying, well, it had to be a crime of great anger. Why would you shoot somebody so many times? So there was angry faculty, angry animal rights people, angry people he met in the neighborhood, you know, but who knows? Take into account the time of day, the number of people that knew that he was leaving at that time of day to go have breakfast, and that limits a lot of possibilities. If it had been in the evening and broad daylight or something like that, then you could open up more possibilities, but there's just not many people knew where he was going that time of morning. We've got two theories, and like I said, it was close, someone close to him, or the other was somebody close to him may have put a contract out on him, which paid somebody to do it, or somebody that he had uh, offended or made mad uh, put a contract out on him. When the Knox County Sheriff's Office couldn't get much further, they brought in another agency in hopes that that might help them dig a little deeper into what happened. Especially starting in the 1980s, early 90s, the FBI began making available experts who could do things like profile killers or potential killers based on the information that they were provided, what the evidence showed, manner of uh, homicide, those kinds of things. And uh, Knox County Sheriff's Office, because it was frustrated trying to get anywhere in this murder investigation, went up to, I believe it's Quantico, Virginia, and provided the information they had in regards to this killing. And what they came back with was several sort of pieces of information which seemed to make sense. One, that whoever killed Dr. Kitchen knew him, had some familiarity with him and with his habits. Somebody who, while may have had murder on their mind, made the decision kind of on an impulse right then. Somebody who was, and this is important, somebody who was very 
angry, somebody who was, it's not overstating it, enraged. And that's really important because the nine shots tell us all we need to know. It was not a case where I know how I'm going to kill you and I only need two or three shots to do it. It's I'm going to empty this gun into you and I may stay here a little longer if necessary to make sure you don't get up. It was that kind of a killing. That's kind of what they came up with in, to, in terms of who the person might have been who killed Dr. Kitchen. But again, it ultimately didn't get anywhere. We have nobody who's been charged yet. We're now looking at 30 years. They did look at the possibility of getting some national attention to try and help solve this case. Back in the late 80s, early 90s, there used to be a program called Unsolved Mysteries, which I suppose if they had podcasts back then, they would have done that, just like we're doing right now. But they would highlight cases that they thought were interesting on a national scope, and they actually expressed interest in this case because it was so high profile with Dr. Kitchen's position being not only dean, but also being somebody nationally recognized for his work in veterinary medicine. They thought this would be a good case to profile. And the Knox County Sheriff's Office was receptive to that. Initially, it appeared there was the possibility that would happen, but ultimately, as we understand, Mrs. Kitchen said, you know what, I can't go through this. So I, I just would rather not. And so it didn't happen. They did things like check area ponds for the possibility of the murder weapon being discarded. They didn't find anything. They obviously put Mrs. Kitchen under scrutiny, probably multiple times. And then there's the possibility that it sort of came out of left field, which as we've discussed, an animal rights group or activist or what have you, that didn't go anywhere. You know, looking back, what that really sort of leaves you with, it seems to me, is somebody who he knew who'd worked with. Somebody who had been around him, knew his habits, maybe knew what he was gonna do that morning. Maybe it was a disgruntled employee that's been suggested as a possibility. I, nobody's given me a specific name, but I think you and I have heard the suggestion. It might've been somebody who had gotten crossways with him. Maybe they'd recently been disciplined. Maybe they were even leaving the college. And that person, male or female, made the decision, I'm gonna confront Dr. Kitchen at his driveway and right then decided, I'm gonna kill him. One of the problems in never solving it, if you never solve it, you don't know if the person next, next to you is the one who might, have been, who might have been the perpetrator. So you never know, it always leaves some doubt in your mind, is, is who, what, and why. And you can't answer any of it. All you know is the, you know, you know he's dead, been dead for 30 years, but you don't know who did it, why they did it, or where they are. Dr. Kitchen put in a lot of sacrifices for his career, for the school, for the students. He gave up his personal career when he became dean because he wanted this school to be as good as it could be. And even though his life ended very tragically, the school went on to honor him and what he had given. If you actually go on campus, there's a tree there and, and a stone you can see um, that's there in his honor. A tree was planted with a memorial stone in front of it. And his picture is in the hospital. All the previous dean's pictures are in the hallway. That's one of the many sort of small tributes. And again, you can't overemphasize the fact 
that this was a killing of an expert in his field on a national perspective. This was somebody who was widely respected in multiple areas, in zoology and in terms of veterinary science and in terms of things that weren't even thought about then in terms of relationships that human beings could have with animals and how animals could be healing for people to spend time with animals and have those kind of comfort animals. That was something he was interested in. That was something that he was pursuing. So here you have a figure of national significance murdered out of the blue on a morning in February. Everybody knew Hiram Kitchen. You know, if you, if you were around him, you knew him. People on main campus knew him, people here, people all across the state. They knew him for one, for one cause or another. It's unfortunate that so much time has passed and we've gotten nowhere. I don't know about you, Leslie, but I wonder sometimes, especially with cases like this, if whoever did this wakes up in the morning, assuming they're still alive and it's on their mind every day, and if they think about it every single day and why they did it and whether it was a mistake and really if they shouldn't come forward. You know about a murderer, you kill someone, that's about the heaviest burden that you could carry in your lifetime. And that's kind of the only thing that can happen now is if that person or person they've shared those details with is still alive and could come forward or if people have heard about this through the years, maybe you've heard a little snippet, your thoughts, what you know can still help investigators. It's still an open case, very much so. If you have any information about this particular cold case for Dr. Hiram Kitchen, you can call the Knox County Cold Case Unit, 865-215-2675. Even though there has not been justice at this point, his legacy is still going to live on with the Zoo Knoxville, with the University of Tennessee, which he both gave so much to. Yeah, I think a lot of people over at the Veterinary College give him credit for having the vision to sort of set a plan going forward on how the college could make a difference and the kinds of impacts it could have uh, working with people and their animals. He contributed a lot. He sometimes pissed people off but he contributed a lot. That's the mark of somebody who's a great person in their field. This has been Appalachian Unsolved, the podcast. New episodes will pick back up in the new year. Look for the next one the first Sunday in January. In the meantime, if you know of any unsolved cases you'd like us to cover, you can email us at 10listens at wbir.com. Appalachian Unsolved is a podcast from WBIR Channel 10, a Tegna company. These episodes are hosted by John North and Leslie Ackerson, executive producers Lauren Hoare, Allison Duff, and Jeremy Campbell. Written and edited by Leslie Ackerson and Lauren Hoare. Additional editing by Tate Johnson and Sam Moore. Original reporting contributed by John North, Leslie Ackerson, and Shannon Smith.